This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. Okay, this is the last one in our uh, Culture Shift series. We're looking at being disciples of Jesus in a, in a culture that's uh, alien to Christianity and a sort of secular post-Christian culture. Um, but I want to ask you the question as we start today. Uh, I don't, anybody like history? My son did uh, history at university and um, we, uh, uh, he wrote his personal statement and uh, let's say I put a little bit of polish on it, as we do in these days, uh, and, th- and he wrote this sentence, so your view of history defines your opinions, your beliefs, your decisions, and even the histories you write or believe are true. In a sense, history defines who you are. And and it's a brilliant statement, uh, Jotham. Uh, It's a brilliant statement because actually what you believe about the world you're in and what you believe about what's happened in the past and and the history is really really critical in in kind of understanding now. So just really, uh, as we intro intro this last one, I want to ask you, how do you interpret this cultural moment historically? How do you interpret it? Do you worry about the relentless decline in number of people in the West who, go, who practice biblical Christianity? Does anybody worry about that? Um, do you seem anxious about what seems to be the inevitable rise of secularism? It feels like, what is happening to this society? So the question is, how do you answer, how do you process that cultural moment? Uh, you know, the rise of secularism, the divine, this decline of a Christian worldview of the last 60 years, so I'm 60, I went, I'm starting to go to 60th birthday parties, which is slightly disconcerting. Um, I'm not 60 yet, and I'm not having a party, so you're not missing out if I don't invite you. Um, but, you know, over the last 60 years, there's been this massive, massive change in, 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 in um, Christianity. So again, most of the research is done. This is religious affiliation in the United States since World War II. This percentage up the side, years along the bottom. You can see in 1945, there was about 62, 63%. And um, you've got to understand, America is, a high, America is a highly Christianized country. By 1950s and 60s, we were up at about 73%. These are people who just go to church. When, so in the quality of their discipleship, people go to church, and then look at what's happened to that decline. Mark Sayers, in the books that I've been quoting, and these, these are the two just last to hold them up for you. Uh, so, Disappearing Church, and this one that's just come out, Reappearing Church, really, really great. If you found this series helpful, I found these books really helpful. Um, come and ask me, and I can tell you what I get them from, uh, Amazon. Uh, the Average Westerner... <laughs> Mark Sayers says in his book, uh, Reappearing Church, the average Westerner processes religion through the crude street-level myth. Let's say that again. Crude street-level myth of rising secularism that is assumed but rarely questioned. The myth is this idea that what's what's happening is that the world is getting more and more secular, in other words, no God, and less and less Christian. Now we see that a little bit in that graph, but the myth actually says that, that that's what's happened through history. So let me just give you uh, this kind of uh, double click on this. So this is the little bit of history. So those that like history, this is good. The rest of you just focus in. So basically the way that what we've been told 
is that ancient civilizations, particularly Greece, were the high of democracy and culture. And the Roman Empire was this kind of high of classical culture. And then what happened is, with the rise of Christianity, we fell into the Dark Ages. Anybody heard of that kind of so far? Yeah. We fell into this Dark Ages where the medieval church presided over cultural decline and anti-intellectual superstition. In other words, what happened in the Dark Ages was like nothing. Nothing clever, nothing good. Everything was in decline. So that actually, the, the idea was the Greeks and the Romans, the height of culture, and then we fell into this big Dark Ages where the church is in charge and, and it's, everything's really incredibly unscientific and superstitious. And then, da-da, we get revival. Uh, re- Renaissance is the French word for revival. In the 15th and 16th centuries, the Renaissance era was a revival of the culture of classical thinking, finally. And then in the 17th and 18th century, you get this enlightenment, the philosophy which aimed to throw off the oppressive power of the church over the human soul. And actually, it's during the Enlightenment, 17th and 18th century, that we started to talk about this Dark Ages. No one talked about it before, and we started to talk about this idea of the Renaissance. So what's happened is that we've got this street view, again, uh, I've put it like this, this secular narrative, this secular story, that human progress towards a secular utopia. What's utopia mean? Paradise. Secular paradise is inevitable as the oppressive force of unscientific, superstitious religion is finally eroded away. We've been told that that happens. In fact, I just was looking for a graph, and the top of the graph, I didn't put it, says, history of science and civilization is taught by many education systems. We're taught that. And in fact, the fact I'm even challenging it now, you think, oh, I'm not so sure. You think, oh, he's just spinning it. But actually, I read two books over the summer. One was called The Making of the West, and a book I'm reading at the moment called Dominion. In fact, Peter went to hear the guy at the Literature Festival. He's in town, Tom Holland, and I missed it. He told me afterwards, which wasn't, didn't bless me. But these two books, and they're both different guys, one from the States, one from the, from the UK, both writing this book, that said, but this, these ideas saying, this is not true. This is not true, but the fact we believe it, the fact that that all our buildings, government buildings, and even the the theatre that we meet across the road in, what what architecture do we we see? It's like classical temples, isn't it? Greek and Roman temples. You go to Washington, D.C., the buildings are built, all the monuments are built like Greek and and Roman temples because we've got this idea that that was the high point and since the church has come in, then then it was bad and then what's happened? We've kicked the church out and now we're back on this rise. Is everyone familiar with that? So so that's what what we... We've got this street-level version that that, that we're... that the church has been bad news. This a US historian, Rodney Stark, I can't remember if I've quoted this for you before, but he says this. This is what I read in the summer. The idea that suddenly in the 16th century, a renaissance of enlightened secular forces, in other words, non-Christian, clever people, burst the chains of Christian thought and set the foundation for modern times in the 18th century is a myth. A myth still presented as the latest word in sophistication, rationalism and reason, but actually remarkably naive and simplistic myth nevertheless. This guy's not a Christian. He's just a historian. We've basically been told it's inevitable that the church will decline and secularism will win. Yes? 
Now that is a not a good place to be if you're a Christian. If you believe that lie, it kind of makes you give up. It kind of makes you think, oh, I quit. But the reality is we need to think about it differently. We need to think about it. And actually, that, that myth is completely the height of, of Western arrogance. I don't know if you ever see on the news where they make comments about uh, nations in Africa and they say, you know, this is their view on this morality or this situation. And, and there's a kind of slightly, particularly on the BBC, there's a slight sort of tut tutting, isn't there, about, well, you know, poor old Africans. And, you know, when they catch up with Western philosophy, then they'll really get our morals, won't they? Did you ever hear that? It's, it's shocking. It's racism. It's a form of neo-colonialism in that we in the West have got all the answers, that we've reached the height of, of morality, that 21st century morals are the height of it, and actually Christianity is the problem. Where actually you look at the, in, in, in the two-thirds world, Christianity is rising massively. It's only here that that secular myth seems to be true. But actually what we find is that it's not true. And we're going to look at that and we're going to look at how Daniel responds to his cultural moment and with the view of that history, how do we respond to that cultural moment? Okay, so Daniel, now that was a long intro. I hope you found it interesting. If not, don't tell me afterwards. Okay, nine, uh, verse one. Uh, this is chapter nine, verse one. The first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, who was made ruler of the Babylonian kingdom, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, he's reading the Old Testament, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last for 70 years. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer, petition, in fasting, in sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his commandments of love with those who live in and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong. We've been wicked and rebelled. We've turned away from your commands and laws. We've not listened to your servants and prophets who spoke your name to our kings or our, our princes and our ancestors and to all the people of the land. Verse 7. You are righteous, Lord, you are righteous, but this day we are covered with shame. The people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, both near and far, and in all the countries you've scattered to us because of our unfaithfulness. In other words, they're saying, because they've not believed the Lord and they've been unfaithful, they're covered in shame. Jump verse 15. Now, O Lord, our God, you brought your people out of Egypt with a mighty hand and made yourself a name that endures this day. We have sinned and done wrong. Lord, in keeping with your righteous act, turn away your judgment and anger from Jerusalem, your, holy, uh, your city, your holy hill. Our sins and iniquities of our ancestors have made Jerusalem and your people an object of scorn for all around us. Now, O God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant. For your sake, O Lord, look with favour on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, O God, and hear. Open our eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make our requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear and act. For your sake, my God, do not delay, because your city and your people bear your name. Basically, what he's doing is he's saying, okay, so I'm in Babylon. I've been there for probably 70 years. So he's an old guy by this time. He was probably in his teens. He's probably in, in, in pushing 70 and 80. He's lived a long, long life for that kind of age, uh, for that kind of uh, era. But he's realizing actually there's something that's been promised. And we're going to come back to this at the end. But there's something being promised that, that, that this exile is not going to go on forever. 
This cultural moment is not going to go on forever. 70 years, God said that that he was going to bring the people of Israel back. He was going to restore what what had been broken. And I think that's super relevant for us. Super relevant for us. But let's just just kind of hold that thought. At the beginning, the first verse in the book of Daniel kind of gives us a clue of what Daniel was thinking. It says, Nebuchadnezzar, verse 1 of Daniel 1, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it, and the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Remember, I mentioned that right at the beginning, if you were here. I said, it's God was in charge. This was not just some political movement that, that Jerusalem and God's people were weak and that, that Babylon was strong and it's inevitable rise of the city of, of, of humanity over the city of God. He's saying, no, God's in charge. God's in charge. And I think it's really important to understand that God is in charge. Turn to the person next to you. If you don't believe it, don't say it. But if you believe it, say it. Say, God is in charge. There's nothing that happens in our culture where God is throwing up his hands and saying, oh my word, this is not turning out I want. Do you believe that? They're not, you're not sure, are you? <laughs> Absolutely, there's nothing that's happening in our culture that's, that God is throwing up his hands and saying, oh my word, I'm taken by surprise by that. So we have to believe, even though we can see the culture declining and church attendance declining, we can, and, and we can see the rise of secularism, you've got to believe that God's in charge. You've got to believe something is happening. Maybe Daniel can help us understand. that He, he basically says, the thing that's happened is the people of God have forgotten the Lord. He uses these words. Talking about the people of God. He doesn't mention Babylon at all. It's all about the people of God. We have sinned and done wrong. It's harsh. We've been wicked and rebelled. We've turned away from your commands and laws. We've not listened. He's basically saying there's something going on in the heart of his people that caused Jerusalem to be destroyed. And something that's going to go on in the heart of his people that will cause Jerusalem to be restored. In other words, he's saying it's about us. Now, actually, my friend David is doing a course. He's writing an essay on the book of Judges. So I said, oh, I've got a little idea from the book of Judges. The book of Judges, the big line of the book of Judges is, uh, there, there was no king. Can anyone know what it says? So everyone did what's right in their own eyes. That feels like 21st century, doesn't it? There was no king, and everybody does what's right in their own, own eyes. And I wish, actually, when I spoke to him, I'd drawn this as a circle, but I didn't, and it was too late. So it's actually a, a, some prose. But basically the pattern in Judges is the people forget the Lord is king. And everyone does what's right in their own eyes. Israel is overrun and falls to its enemies. God visits his people and they grumble and moan at him. So Gideon says to, to God, If the Lord is with us, why has all this happened? Where are the wonders our ancestors told us about? In other words, why are we in this cultural moment? God, why have you let this happen? Then what happens is God stirs his people to remember him and seek his face, and then he gives them victory over their enemies. And then what happens is the people have prosperity and peace in the land. And guess what happens? They forget the Lord. And we go round again. And that's what you get in the book of Judges. And it's a picture of what happens in the world. It's a picture of what happens in culture. That that, 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 that there's moments where where people remember the Lord and you call those revival. And then there's people where gradually the Lord is forgotten and you get decline. 
It's interesting, I'm working with some church plants. The two places I'm working at the moment in church plants are South Wales and Belfast. Anybody knows revival history? Those are two places where God poured out his spirit at the end of the turn of this, at start of the 20th century. And now what's happened is it's like people are remembering the Lord. It happens. That's what happens is people forget the Lord and people remember the Lord. And so I just thought I'd give you like a little potted history of that cycle of what I think has happened in our culture. So bear with me a little bit more history. This is how, how, how I interpret it. So in the, so in the, what we get is this pattern in Western culture. So after the Second World War and the authoritarianism and the hardship of the Second World War, what happened, we saw that in our graph, 1945, what happened? People remembered the Lord. You know, the, 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 the National Socialism or the Fascism and the Communism were very uh, kind of secular forces. They didn't believe in Christianity. And people, through the, all of that, that through the trouble and the hardship, they remembered the Lord. And then, and churches in the, in the United States and the UK were fuller in the 1950s than almost any time in history. It's a myth that the churches were full in the medieval times and it's gradually been going down. That Actually, there's a cycle of forgetting the Lord and remembering the Lord. And, I, and, and, and then you get in the 1960s, you get the swinging 60s. I tried to find some cool images for you. You get the swinging 60s. What happens is some good things happen in the swinging 60s. Women are liberated. Yes. That, that work becomes less backbreaking. Yes. Technology brings material prosperity. Yes. We live in this time of peace and prosperity, a bit like uh, uh, judges. And what happens? We start to forget the Lord. Everybody starts to be enthroned as their own king, and everybody does what's right in their own eyes. They call it the permissive society. Is this familiar to some of you? Some of you think, man, I wasn't born until 1990 or 2000. Just bear with me, okay? Then the 1970s, what happened is in the, in the, 19, in the 1960s, people wanted to make the world a better place. By the time you got to the 1970s and 1980s, the people wanted to make the world a better place for me. You got this kind of loads of money culture. Remember that kind of stuff? Loads of money. One or two of us remember. <laughs> I won't mention the political party because I'll be in trouble. But it was very much like, let's, make, let's have more money and more stuff and more experiences. And what happened is we chased after stuff and we forgot the Lord. By the time you get the 90s and the noughties, the secular myth has taken root. The Christian foundations and the moral boundary markers that underpinned our society are well and truly pulled up. So I was saying to uh, Paul in my three, Paul gets a name check, Andy's in my three as well, but Paul's in my three, we were talking about this transformation. You know, things that have happened, particularly in the States, you know, I, I cannot believe that the Supreme Court would vote for so, those, some of the things that he's voted for in the last 10 years in the United States. I thought that would never happen. We have seen uh, uh, this rise of secularism, and it's almost like it's fine. So again, I will mention a political party. A Democrat says, actually, because churches don't believe in, in uh, gay marriage or equal marriage, that he's going to take their tax breaks away. It'll come here. Because we're in that period where we've forgotten the Lord. Suddenly the church is seen as bad guys. So what happened is, I remember this, we thought, we better move with the culture. So we used to have organs, and then we thought, the culture's got bands, you know, we like the Beatles, we like the Stones, you know, we, so we better have a band. And then what happened is you think, well, better take off the religious clothes, because that makes people, and we think, we'll just try to wear a cool shirt, or we'll wear sneakers, and we'll have nice coffee. The first thing that Christopher did when he joined this church, he said, 
you need nicer coffee. And everyone, hallelujah. And so what happened is, but, and some churches thought, we'll just go with the culture. And other churches thought, man, the pressure's too much. So they, I won't get my Bible and do it. They got their Bible and thought, this is an uncomfortable truth. We'll just rip that one out. And we'll rip that one out. And, and you know, we'll just tear out the pages. We won't believe those pages. Guess which churches closed first? The ones who were ripping pages out of the Bible. Because actually, if you compromise, it ain't going to work. And what happens is some churches got their band so funky that all the Christians thought, we better go there and we'll gather together and there'll be 500 or 1,000 in our church and we'll think, the world is fine. Christendom is still here. And it's those stupid churches because we're right. And so what happened is you got celebrity leaders and celebrity leaders started to think it was all about them and not about the Lord. So some celebrity leaders abused their people. Some celebrity leaders slept with the, uh, you know, the, the, the slept with the worship leader. Some celebrity leaders thought, ah, oh, it's just about me. We'll change our theology. Do what I want, and they forgot the Lord. They forgot the Lord. So we live now, and everybody in society thought, yes, we knew it was a fake. It's a bad, oppressive thing. It better go. That was a quick potted history, wasn't it? Okay, so now, where are we now? 70 years since World War II, 90 years since the Great Depression, and the Western world looks itself in the mirror and says, aren't we happy? You better believe that. People are saying, you've got to be told that this, this secular myth is definitely working. We're definitely happy. You know, nothing seems to be at a burst. Our folly of dreams, comfort bubble. Everything's fine. And as I said last week, uh, two weeks ago, today the industries of style and experience means that life in the first world bubble is as good as any time in history. And that is true. In terms of if you're an average person, your life is as comfortable as any time in history in the Western bubble. Good news of Jesus, therefore, seems to be quite irrelevant because life seems to be quite, do we doing quite well. Why do you need a saviour when you can brunch vegan and save the planet? Why do you need, why do you need a saviour when there's beautiful craft beers? You know, why do you need a saviour when there's good coffee and nice designs and good technology? Why do we need Jesus? Why do you need Jesus when you can look out of your hotel window and see a beautiful turquoise beach? Why do you need Jesus? The Western world tells us that this perfect paradise, this utopia, with a little bit more freedom and a little bit more technological advance, and we're just there. We've built this Tower of Babel, and it seems like heaven is within reach. That's what the advertising on TV tells us. But something else is happening. The Western world has good coffee, but society, sorry about the pun, is waking up and smelling the coffee. The world is not as it turned out to be in the digital capitalist liberal progressive brochure. But you're not allowed to say. You're not allowed to say. So we fly to our leadership conference in Cape Town. You think, what a beautiful city, Cape Town. Has anyone been to Cape Town? It's a beautiful city. If it had hot water, I'd move there. (laughs) I don't mean in the taps, I mean in the sea. Although there was no water in the taps when we were there last time. That's another story. But you can drive through Cape Town and say, what a beautiful city. As long as you stay on your phone and you don't look at the townships on the Cape Flats and Kailisha, 
Because they tell you that the world is broken. Let me give some others. So what we do is we say, we'll keep the people out. This is a great bubble we live in. You know what we want to do? We want to keep people out. Because those people are coming across the Mediterranean in rubber boats, coming and taking our good life, and taking our jobs. We'll keep them out. Let's build the wall. And everyone goes, yes. Because we want to protect our little bubble. We turn on our TV sets and we see life's not quite as straightforward. You know, just, it's, it's fine. that we, we believe that the world isn't broken and we don't need a saviour as long as the poor stay on their estates. As long as we don't notice the divorce rates blowing families apart. As long as we don't notice the mental health crisis. As long as we don't notice the, that society is becoming more and more lonely and isolated. As long as we don't notice community cohesion is breaking down. As long as we don't mention big brother, uh, contro- uh, big data controlling our lives. As long as we don't mention politics becoming toxic. As long as we act surprised that the trolling and abuse on social media has reached academic proportions. Because as long, something's wrong. There's my point here. Maybe God is allowing this because he wants us to remember the Lord. God is allowing the emptiness of this secular project if we really face the reality and smell the coffee, the emptiness of the kingdom without kin. Paul says in Romans 1 about his judgment, God gave them over. Read chapter 1 of Romans, it's scary. But he just, God says, I just let them do what they want. Judgment was just, I'm going to let you do what you want. You're a parent, you want to bring judgment to your kids, just let them do what you want. One or two people are processing that moment. I thought the secular myth was, just let them do what they want and they'll be happy. Maybe God is allowing the decline of his church in the 21st century, this 21st century destruction of Jerusalem, because he wants his people to remember the Lord. Now this is where it gets a bit tricky for me. I was reading the, over the summer and thinking about this series, and I felt God say to me, what if my plan was to burst this comfortable, easy life bubble so people remember me? Would you say yes, Howard? Or to put it more starkly, was I prepared to have my life disrupted if it meant more people turned to Jesus? Internally, I was ashamed by my answer. I was shocked by what it said about my real priorities, my lack of willingness to sacrifice for Jesus and his cause. You know, I can be here, I can preach the sermons and think, Lord, revivers, where are the wonders? Do your stuff. But, you know, my life's just like yours. I've started to watch a box set. I've just got a nice new car. You know, I'm interested in achievement. I, I celebrate my kids' achievement. I'm, you know, I, I'm waiting for the next holiday and weekend break. What if God offered the church in the West the way of the fiery furnace or the lion's den or the cross? What would you say? If I'm not proud of my answer. I'd say, no, thank you. Even if the, and we read it, don't we, in Daniel, even if the, the fiery furnace moment meant that people, rem- mean that Nebuchadnezzar remembered the Lord? What if the da- lion's den moment meant that Darius remembered the Lord? What if the cross of Jesus, the suffering and the pain, was there so that people 
would remember the Lord. And I thought, no, Lord, I don't want to go there. But the church has gone there in over the centuries. In China now, the way to kill the church is to make it comfortable. They've brought in a state church called the Free Self Church. It's interesting it's called that. The Free Self Church was this comfortable Christianity without the persecution. But the underground church in China is the fastest growing in the world. In Iran, where uh, Islamic uh, revolution persecutes Christians, people die for their faith, the Iranian church is the fastest growing church in the world. Now I'm not saying God bring on a hard time on us, I'm really not. But what does God need to do to me for me to remember the Lord? Daniel's prayer helps us. A couple of runs through and then we're done. Daniel prays this, Lord, you are righteous, but this day we're covered in shame. You've scattered us because of our unfaithfulness. Our sins and iniquities to our ancestors of our ancestors have made Jerusalem and your people an object of scorn. <coughs> Bill Hull, in his book, The Disciple-Making Pastor, slaps you between the eyes on this one. The Western Evangelical Church is weak, self-indulgent, and superficial. It's been thoroughly discipled by its culture. Regardless of our nodding assent to the importance of Christian salvation and maturity, our passions lay elsewhere. We sacrifice the poured out life of a, of a disciple on the altar of shallow success, consumer choice, and self-gratification. Oh, I don't want to read it. I, I, I don't want to give you a hard time. Honestly, I'm just working through my own stuff. I'm just oversharing because I feel, man, I'm so like that. So easily self-indulgent, so easily superficial. I can talk a good game, but what's happening in my heart? So often I want consumer choice and shallow self-gratification. And so do you. So how do we move forward? Daniel says you've got to repent. Repent means change the way you think. Walk a different way. We've got to repent of our half-baked, lukewarm faith. We've got to move out of accumulation into transformation. Again, Mark Sayers in this book says this. We need to no longer live to acquire a portfolio of possessions and cool experiences. Instead, the horizon we're heading for is a meeting of heaven and earth at the end of the age. Consumer culture is driven by the secular myth that there's nothing more than experience and stuff, so grab all you can before you die. In contrast, God wants us to inhabit the truth that there's a grand drama at play in which God invites us to partner with him and centre our lives around his mission to the world. Nets must be dropped. The way of paralysis that endless consumerism creates is believing with our feet. And following the Saviour's footsteps. I'm challenging myself. Lord, I need to repent. Lord, we need to repent. Right now we need to say we've chased the other things. We've not put you first. We've, we've not followed your footsteps. We've not said that this kingdom and your presence and your cause is more important than a nice brunch. Lord, I'm ashamed. We're ashamed that we've made that choice and pushed you to the edge and forgotten you so easily. <laughs> 
What happens is Daniel throws off the suffocating blanket that says this is inevitable. I, Daniel, understood from the Scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to me, the Jeremiah prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So I turned to God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting, in sackcloth and ashes. He literally gets down and dirty and says, this matters to me. He reads the Bible and sees that God is going to do something and restore Jerusalem and bring an exile to an end. And he prays. He prays. Now, O Lord, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant. I just love his earnestness. For your sake, Lord, look with favour on your desolate church. Give ear, O God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make our request to you because we're righteous, but because of your great mercy. Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear and act for your great namesake, my Lord. Do not delay because your city and your people bear your name. Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, act. Finishing here. Dr. R.T. Kendall, a member uh, who was a ministered American guy, ministered in London for over two decades. He tweeted this out. I mentioned it last week. He tweeted this out. A British, a British court in a transgender case ruled that belief in the Bible is incompatible with human dignity. There's, a, there's the secular myth right there. And he says, how far has England gone? And it demonstrates that all Britain needs a great awakening. I've never preached on revival. It's like, but I'm, I feel like as I'm getting older, I think, Summons got to go. We've got to pray. I'm, I'm, I'm feeling the paucity of my own prayer. I'm feeling how comfortable and how easy it is in Cheltenham to think the world's not broken. I don't need a saviour. But we need to wake up. How long before this culture shift, this state of the church, this state of our nation brings me, brings you afresh to our knees? I'm going to read this long quote that I read some years ago and I felt God prompted me again this morning as I was finishing off. And I don't say this to lock and load on you. I say this because I know that God wants to stir again. That's to remember his name. This is a guy called Howard Guinness. I didn't choose it because it was called Howard or Guinness. <laughs> so this is Sacrifice. Uh, this is a, from a chapter in his book entitled Sacrifice. I say it to myself. Where are the young men, the old men and women of this generation who live dangerously and be reckless in his service? Where are his lovers, those who'd love him and the souls of men and women more than our own reputations or comfort or life? Where are those who'd say no to self, who'll take up Christ's cross and bear it after him? I think, oh, stop it. Who is willing to be nailed to it in a college or an office or a home or mission field? Who are willing, if need be, to bleed and to suffer and to die in it? Where are the men and women of vision today? Where are those of enduring vision? Where are those who have seen the King in his beauty and henceforth count all else but refuge that they may win Christ? Where are the adventurers, the explorers, the pioneers of God who will count one human soul of greater value than the rise and fall of empires? Where are the men and women of glory? Sent in God-sent loneliness, difficulties, persecutions, misunderstandings, discipline, sacrifice, death. Where are the men and women who are willing to pay a price for vision? 
Where are the men and women of prayer? Where are those like the old psalmist who count God's word more important to them than daily food? Where are the women who, like Moses, commune with God face to face as a man or woman talks to his friend? Those who unmistakably bear with them the fragrance of meeting God day after day. Where are God's men and women for this day of power? Lord, we just feel, Lord, if I've preached this just to me, I'm sorry. But Lord, I know that you're saying it's time that we prayed. It's time that we put aside our easy self-indulgence and said, this really matters. It's time for us to believe that you want us to remember the Lord, that you're the sovereign God and you want to come again. We say, like R.T. Kendall, it's time for a great awakening. Lord, we repent of forgetting you. And we say, Lord, help us through what's spoken here and through this series and through what you're doing by your spirit in us as a church to remember you. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.